Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. As always, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and I have some great news to report. Starting on May 27th, which is this Wednesday, we get to officially invite all of you to come run and hike and bike on our amazing network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Now, we do all still need to be following all local ordinances and practicing proper social distancing, but if we just do that, well, then I get to invite you to come here and You can also stay in Elevation Hotel, which is also opening this Wednesday, the 27th, which is where our Blister headquarters are located, right here in Mount Crested Butte. Okay, on our previous episode of Off the Couch, we spoke to Mike McKnight about his feat of running 100 miles while consuming zero calories. And in that episode, Mike talks a bit about some of the advice that our guest today, Zach Bitter, gave Mike to help him prepare for the effort. And then, just one week after Mike McKnight's effort, Zach goes off and does his own incredible thing. Now, let's just back up here for a second and go back to last year, Saturday, August 25th. Zach set a new world record for the fastest time that a human being has run 100 miles. He ran 100 miles in 11 hours, 19 minutes, and 13 seconds. And then, of course, once Zach hit the 100-mile finish mark, he proceeded to just keep on running and set another world record for the longest distance covered in 12 hours. In 12 hours, Zach ran 104.8 miles. Now, these are two mind-blowing feats, and you can listen to my conversation with Zach and hear him walk through all of the details of the effort on episode number 15 of Off the Couch. Okay, now let's fast forward to May 16th, 2020, and Zach just set another 100-mile world record, and this time he wasn't on a trail or a road or even a track he set the world record for the fastest 100 miles ever run on a treadmill, averaging a 7-minute and 18-second mile. So I spoke to Zach just a couple days after this 34-year-old's most recent world record-setting accomplishment, and we discussed when he first got the idea to attempt this, the biggest differences between running 100 miles on a treadmill versus a track, We talked about his preparation and strategy and goals for this event. And then, and this is actually one of my favorite things about Zach, he's not just a world record runner. He is also obsessed with the science behind peak performance. And he and I have a fascinating conversation about Mike McKnight's Zero Calorie 100. Zach is just so good and he's so interesting talking about all of these things. And if you'd like to hear him do more of it, again, you can check out episode number 15 of Off the Couch, but you can also catch him on his own podcast called Human Performance Outliers. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with the remarkable Zach Bitter. Here we go. Well, Zach, how are you today and where are you today? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, and, and feeling feeling pretty good. I can <laughs> I can still kind of tell that I ran 100 miles on Saturday, but <laughs> it's weird. Even even with ultra marathons, you tend to normalize the recovery process a little bit to a certain degree, so you at least know what to expect for the most part. Okay, so when did you first get this idea? Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting because, like most folks, I think that were probably preparing for a race in kind of late or early spring or I guess late winter, early spring timeframe had a pretty good chunk of their training program probably in place already. And I was kind of right in there where I was training for a hundred mile track event in London that was going to be on, I believe if I remember right, like April 20th or right around there. And, uh, 
it got canceled like every event basically somewhere in that kind of March end of March time frame. And, uh, so at that point it was like, well, I just had put in a couple of 140 mile training weeks with about a hundred miles each in those that were specific towards kind of the hundred mile goal intensity. So I was like, I don't know if I really want to just scale back on, on peaking right now because I had done a good chunk of the work already and, uh, I didn't really know exactly what to do at first, but, um, fortunately I had been familiar with guys like Mike Wardian, Jacob Puzzi and, uh, uh, Dave, um, Dave Proctor who had done treadmill record things in the past. And I thought like at years ago, I thought like, well, maybe that's something I'd try to do sometime, but, uh, it kind of been on the back of my mind since it's just a little more appealing in my opinion to go to an actual event even if it is on a 400 meter track. So, uh, so I thought, well, maybe this is the time to do it. If we're looking at nothing probably popping up for at least the first half of the year. And I just kind of sat down with my wife and we're, we were chatting about it a bit. And I thought, well, I could just like live stream it on YouTube or something like that. And, and that way it would be documented and just see what happens. And, you know, I, I, uh, had decided that maybe that'd be a good idea. So I reached out to some of my sponsors and I reached out to Nordic track and, asked them what they thought about it. And they were excited enough about the prospect that we started kind of looking at how we could kind of structure something like this. And then it went from kind of me just throwing up a webcam and going on treadmill to doing like an event where we brought in guest speakers and hosts and really kind of built a little bit of a, of a production behind it, which I thought was kind of, kind of a cool way to make something that otherwise would be an incredibly boring 12 hour watch (laughs) (laughs) a little more entertaining. And then and then still be able to kind of express my my energies a little bit as well on the day. So back on, uh, it was, I think, August 25th, 2019. This is when you set a new world record for the fastest 100 miler. How did you feel that morning back on August 25th versus this past Saturday? You know, whether it was just in terms of where you are with your training or if you're like, man, I I was feeling I'm feeling stronger at this point or I was back then. Or how did those two mornings compare before you started? Yeah, I think it was fairly comparable. I mean, if anything, I was maybe a little more fit before the the August one from just purely a hundred mile standpoint relative to the event I was doing. And that's mostly just, I think, specificity type stuff. So for the, for the race I did in August at the Pettit Center, I had spent a good four weeks where I was building my long runs and back-to-back long runs out on a track. And for this one, I definitely had a similar just overall fitness probably, but the amount of time I had to really spend on a treadmill and really kind of get used to that type of an environment uh, was probably below where I was from a specificity standpoint for the track in August. And, uh, then there was just the, the relatable part of it where, you know, August when I set the hundred mile world record and 12 hour world record was kind of almost like a five and a half to almost six year process where I was, had done my first one and had done multiple others between then where I really started to kind of chisel away at where I thought would be, you know, the right way to prepare for it as much as, as how to execute on the day itself. So this was kind of a little more new since I hadn't run more than 30 miles on a treadmill before there's like 70 miles of like relative uncertainty of like, well, what, what does the body feel like at mile 70 on a treadmill versus a track? And, um, one thing I found out early on on Saturday was like fluid intake and kind of where that fit within the context of being on a treadmill in my house, trying to control temperature as much as possible versus the climate I had at the Pettit center where it was, you know, I was moving. So I was, I was cooling a little bit more effectively, I think. And in an environment where they, they kept it pretty cool because of the speed skating rinks and hockey rinks in the middle. So, so I would say like the, the biggest difference was just maybe like the specific, the specifics of it, um, in preparation and then just like the ability to kind of lean on past experiences to execute it properly. I never really thought in my life I would end up asking this question, Well, I guess I never thought I might talk to somebody who'd run 100 miles on a treadmill. So maybe that's why it never (laughs) had occurred to me. But now this treadmill becomes a pretty remarkably important piece of equipment, right? And like, Mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm starting to wonder if you had already had certain preferences coming in in terms of like how firm of a platform a treadmill might have versus how springy a treadmill might feel. And given that I feel like you just analyze everything, I kind of have to think you thought through this a little bit. Yeah, you know, I, I think I did it. I did as much as I could given what I knew about treadmills and yeah. what I what I didn't know and stuff. And I knew I had been using a, a NordaTrack incline trainer um, X15i for about five years. I had got one in 2015. So when I reached out to NordaTrack, it was because I thought that that machine was a pretty good piece of equipment that I'd been using. And they agreed but thought, you know, well, it's been five years. We've got newer versions of that. So <laughs> Um, they wanted me to use one of their newer ones, which I was fine with doing. Um, and it is kind of a more of a springier, uh, deck on this. So it was a similar feel to the other one, but it just kind of had the updates to it more or less. Um, so like, you know, there are, there's some stuff. I also talked to, uh, one of our guest speakers, uh, Dr. Jeff Burns, uh, he's a PhD out of university of Michigan and He's done a lot of uh, his research around like mechanics and things of uh, of elite runners and stuff. So I, I talked to him for about an hour or so, a couple of weeks before just going over like, you know, what what are some weird things I might expect that or I should expect that I would not be thinking about when, you know, doing a, a more typical ultra marathon or a track ultra marathon. And we kind of went over just kind of like the psychology of being on a machine that's essentially like telling you what to do in terms of responding to the belt versus kind of propelling yourself forward on, on flat ground and, uh, all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, so I, I, I felt like I went in prepared enough from the mechanical side of things. I got to know the treadmill well enough where I knew like, okay, this is what, uh, you know, nine miles per hour is going to feel like this is what eight miles per hour is going to feel like, and kind of had that like rate of perceived exertion stuff dialed in pretty closely. And, um, but what I did expect was like I mean, my fluid loss was almost double of what it was at the Pettit Center. So I ended up uh, kind of getting myself a little dehydrated almost in the early hours and had to play catch up a bit there for a couple hours. And I think there was a couple hours in there where I was taking up to like 60 ounces of fluid just to try to like get back on top of that. Um, and, and so that was probably the, the biggest management thing that I came in unprepared about. Uh, but yeah, the rest of it is like, you know, it's just kind of like trying to like pinpoint, well, how is my physical performance going to compare to this versus like a flat stretch? Um, and then how is my mind going to play differently compared to being on a track or something else? So I think on paper, it looks like, okay, it can't be that much different. A 400 meter track is pretty monotonous as is. So, you know, you're not really scaling to too much more monotony by getting on a treadmill, but Jeff was spot on with his description, I think, when he told me that, like, just having the control of pacing being on a track is going to be a little different than having that belt kind of tell you what to do, where you kind of feel like you're losing that control. And that kind of makes you want to just jump off the machine after a while. <laughs> and and walk us through this a little bit. I mean, the like pace setting or whatever, right? Because you could dial speed up or down depending on how you're feeling and like talk about like your strategy going in and did you have a strategy coming in that you're like look I'm just going to set it at this mile per hour we're keeping that the whole time or were you like I think I'm going to play with this talk us through that a little bit yeah you know I from from previous races I think ideally I would have liked to just kind of pick what's the average pace I think I can do and just set it forget it and just kind of go uh, but after talking to Jeff and, uh, just playing around with a little bit on the long runs, I think I realized that doing a bit of a strategy of trying to target a specific pace or close to, and like, working like slightly faster or slightly slower than that and going back and forth was going to be a better move just to kind of give myself little benchmarks along the way that I could fixate on versus trying to think about being on the treadmill all day long. So I would, I spent, I think, I think my slowest pace was eight miles per hour and my fastest pace was 9.5 miles per hour. And I was kind of moving around within that framework. Uh, more often than not, it was a little tighter than that. It was probably about 8.3 to 8.7 for the most part. And then, uh, yeah, it went from everything from doing a few miles at a specific pace before changing to like, you know, when I would get into a bit more of a, like having a harder time kind of focusing on 
staying on there, I would switch to like, okay, I'm just going to do like a quarter mile at this pace. And then I'm going to switch to another pace. And, you know, sometimes I'd find myself doing that multiple times within a a single mile versus a grouping of miles. So I was kind of responding to where my like focus was, was leading at the time. And, and that's kind of how I, I use that kind of back and forth pacing strategy. And you came into the day with what kind of expectation? Yeah, you know, it was, my expectations I think were that like, if I had like, like I I should be able to have a good shot at going under 12 hours. I didn't think that was super unreasonable. Um, Had I not hit any like big roadblocks or anything like that throughout the course of the day. So that was kind of where my, my pacing strategy kind of fell. in the, and then it was uh, just like I was I would say I had a little bit more nervous energy just because like anything you're that you're doing for like the first time. It, I mean, I've run 100 miles a few times, but like just knowing like I've never done it on a trail before, I feel it was a little more similar to kind of doing an event for the first time where you have this little bit of unknown kind of floating out there, which which can be a little unnerving leading into the event, but it's also what makes it kind of exciting because you're, you're going to like embark on something you've never done before, which is kind of a rewarding experience when you finish. And, uh, and then just on top of that all, it was like most of the time when I'm doing a race, it's like if I have a bad day or if I, you know, drop out or something like that, I'm mostly letting myself down. Obviously my crew and support, they get affected by that as well. But with this particular event, we had almost 30 guest speakers lined up and hosts lined up. So I'm thinking if I, if I really blow up at hour six and then I like just ruin everyone's schedule that we're <laughs> planning to come in and watch so-and-so come and talk then. So there's a little bit more pressure, I think maybe from, from that side of things. But, um, I just kind of leaned on the, the mindset that it's still just a hundred mile distance. I still need to be able to respond to adversity when it happens, because there's going to be something that happens you didn't expect. And those kind of like, more tried and true, like kind of, uh, mental approaches with, with, I think ultra marathon and especially the hundred mile distance stuff still kind of ring true on the treadmill. So I tried to kind of lean on that a little bit to calm that, uh, and make sure I wasn't, wasn't too, uh, you know, in a, in a flurry kind of going into the thing. So that's a, it's a good thing that you kind of keep reminding us of is that like you were putting on a media event and running a hundred miles, right? <laughs> I mean, cause I, I was thinking like, you know, uh, let's see if I've got it right. Your average, your average pace per mile when you, when you set the hundred fastest hundred, am I right? 648. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then what did your average end up on this past Saturday? I think it was six, seven, 17, seven, 17. Okay. Um, so you, I don't know which actually is more impressive, 648 on its own or 717 during a media event. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I was, I feel like the media event, although, I mean, it did take a little more like just energy and bandwidth, I think going in, like making sure everything was set and ready to go for that, uh, that I had to kind of account for that maybe I wouldn't have to at a, at a different event where you just kind of have to focus on, okay, get yourself to the race, do your pre-race stuff, get going. And once you get going, things are, are rolling. And then it's just kind of, you know, doing what you've been doing for however, however long you've been doing it, which in my case has been almost 10 years for ultra marathons. So having that in the background thinking like, well, you know, hopefully the power doesn't go out. Hopefully we don't have like, you know, guests can't connect and all that stuff like that was, was a little bit uh, of a worry, I guess. But, um, I feel like I did a pretty good job of kind of keeping that kind of in the background a bit. And then it also provided some good, uh, entertainment for myself. I actually tuned into about six or seven hours of it while I was on the treadmill with, uh, with some Bluetooth speaker or uh, headphones. So, uh, part of it was kind of cool just to hear everyone's stories and what they're talking about, check in and see how the hosts and the guests thought about how I was doing. And if they had any pointers as to whether I was doing things right or wrong, it was kind of fun to listen to that too. Um, so I kind of inadvertently, I guess, built in some, some entertainment for myself, uh, by doing it that way too. So it kind of, there's a little bit of extra, extra stress in, in work, but also a little bit of a benefit from that when you can, can have some of the folks that we had in there come in and, 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 and chat and, uh, give you a little bit of entertainment. So, I mean, I think anytime somebody's doing a hundred mile anything, it's a probably appropriate question to ask about 
what the lowest moment was or most concerned moment was throughout this throughout this event? Yeah, so I guess there was two things that kind of stick out to me. And one was just like my my fluid mistake early on where um, the, the, I, I kind of picked up on it quickly because I started my stomach started to get kind of tight and I started to feel like um, like some, like something was kind of wrong there and it was too early really for me to like suspect that that was like a nutritional issue, um, for a couple of reasons. One was, uh, you know, I was, I, the, the, the luxury of this is, was at my house. So I could really much pretty much just do what I normally did from like a food preparation standpoint. So I'm like, okay, I didn't eat anything weird in the days leading in. I literally ate what I would normally do from home. Uh, you know, it's really early on. So it's unlikely that I just was consuming too much or, um, the wrong stuff or something like that at that point in the race where I was going to have like a stomach issue. But, uh, you know, so I was pretty certain that it was fluid and electrolytes or something like that. Uh, and, and that did kind of like pull me a little bit away from my, my normal strategy that I was going to do just to catch up on that. And I mean, that probably costed me some time in the grand scheme of things. And then, uh, the other one was, uh, we had we were running so much power through the corner of the house that we had the treadmill set up. <laughs> I had an extra air conditioner set up in the room. We tra- we jacked the thermostat down as far as it would go, and uh, you know just to try to make it a little more a little more uh, cool in there. And then with all the video stuff, like we had uh, we had some issues with the power, kind of like causing the screens on the treadmills to to freeze up. So like. Uh, I had to switch back and forth between treadmills kind of a bunch of times early on to to account for that before we realized what it was. Once we realized what it was, you know, the big fear was like, oh, I, hopefully it's not the machine because for one, like we just, you know, give Nordatrack terrible PR. <laughs> and then uh, secondly, just because obviously you, you don't want to have that be the reason that, you know, things go badly and you don't really know what is happening, if it's going to remedy itself or if it's going to be a continuous problem. But once we kind of figured out what was going on, we just ran an extension cord across the house and plugged the treadmill into a different outlet. And then everything ran smoothly from that, from that point on. So, you know, that added a little bit of, I guess, anxiety and, and a little bit of time cost from like switching the treadmills a little more frequently than maybe I would have planned going into it. Um, and it certainly caused some anxiety for the folks that are tracking my mile splits because instead of me getting off on an even like 0.0, it was like, Oh, Zach's switching at a 0.56 something. And now we got to account for that. And then, you know, try to get him to, when he switches next, do it on the, on the top of a fraction so that it equals out to a full <laughs> mile. And it gets a little more confusing, I think from them. So, uh, you know, thankfully I didn't have to account for that, but you know, what we ended up doing with that before we figured out that it was a power issue was, uh, we would have, we had a camera facing the, the, the screen on the treadmill so you could see like the time and the pace going. So then if it timed out, uh, like is when it was doing that, it wasn't turning the belt off. So, uh, the belt would keep going, but my timer would pause and my mileage would stop clicking forward. So it was very prudent to catch that right away. So I wouldn't run extra time and not get anything counted for it. So we would have someone watching, we had someone watching from the, from a monitor to like watching that particular screen and then like relaying back if they saw it before I did. And usually I'd catch it first, but, uh, you know, that was probably another thing that kind of cost me a little bit, but in the grand scheme of things, it's like, it's one of those things. It's like, you're setting this up in your house and there's just, there's, there's, I guess probably a lot more potential things that could go wrong that you even consider or could imagine to consider. So the fact that we were able to problem solve without too much of a, of a, a, an issue that just basically shut the thing down altogether uh, was probably a win in the long haul. Back to, I think, sort of the mental aspect of this. I mean, when you and I talked last time um, after you had set this record on the track, you know, that in itself was like, oh, this is insane, right? Like, normally people are going to cover 100 miles, like, not on a track. And so mentally, what did this move feel like for you, you know, covering a hundred, you know, not on some, not on some trail run, not on a track, now on a treadmill, would you, would your advice back to us be like, turns out this is definitely the psychologically most difficult or what was your experience? 
Yeah, I think maybe the way to describe it is it's just different enough that for someone doing it for the first time, especially, I think it probably would come out feeling that way, like it was the most difficult. Uh, you know, like what I found was that like if you can like find a way to just take a really short break from being on the treadmill, it does a really good job of kind of recentering your focus and you can kind of get back on and just kind of cruise for a while. But like if you have to just sit on the thing for like – you know, like 40 miles continuously, then I think that would really eat away at you a little more than even being on a track and certainly more than like being on a trail or an open road or something like that. So I don't know if that's how much, the, the hard part to tease out is, is that something that I would need to figure out personally, or is that something that's going to be kind of standard across the board for anyone doing something like this? Because from a mechanical standpoint and a control standpoint, if you can manage to get the temperature ideal, I think like, you know, being on a treadmill should be in theory faster than being on a track even just because you're going exactly the distance you're looking for. And there's just so much more you can control in that environment. But for me, like the best example, I was at mile 87. I actually just was like really kind of struggling to like, like it was just a kind of eating at my mind that I was still on the machine. And I was like, okay, I need to just go sit down for like a minute or two and let my mind recenter and then hop back on and, and see if I like can just focus on getting this last half marathon done. So I actually did that. I actually got off the treadmill and sat down for two minutes. And then when I got back on, it was like I had just started again. It was like my mind had completely reset. So it's kind of weird. It's like this little like game or like hack you have to do with your mind to kind of make it sustainable. But uh, it, it, it's not ideal in the sense that you're not gaining any distance for that two minutes or however long you, you time out for, but, uh, it felt like it was necessary to me. So that was kind of the route I went. It would be interesting to see if like, if you do like a whole bunch of these, if like I would decide, okay, over the next five years, I'm going to do two treadmill hundreds a year and really try to fine tune things. If you could kind of like normalize that and not need to do that anymore. Um, I'll let someone else run that experiment, though. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think this is going to become a twice-a-year thing for you? Uh, I hope not. <laughs> okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about food. How did you think about that coming in, and then what was the actual sort of practice and execution like for you on the day? Yeah, yeah. So my my strategy normally for a race like this of about a hundred miles, very runnable surface is I'm going to target about maybe 40 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And I'm going to usually do it mostly through liquid stuff. So I'll put like whatever like nutrition in my bottle. So I'll kind of have that kind of twofold thing of I'm going to hydrate and fuel at the same time. And that's what I did at the Pettit center. And, and that worked really well. It was like a flawless, like part of the day for me. Whereas I kind of had a, I hit a roadblock early on with the hydration stuff where once I was kind of behind on that, I was a little like tepid in terms of wanting to add too much fuel to the water while I was trying to rehydrate. Um, cause I just wasn't sure how my stomach was going to respond to that, given that that was kind of how the dehydration first started to kind of manifest. So I kind of spent a good chunk of that first few hours fueling a lot less than I did at the Pettit center. And I ended up averaging maybe around 20 grams of carbohydrate per hour over the course of the day versus the 40 that I would normally try to do from an ideal standpoint in a, in a, in a race like this or an event like this. So, um, it's hard to know how much that affected things. Uh, I, if I had to guess, it felt to me like at the Pettit center, I could feel pretty comfortable letting my heart rate get up at 150 or a little above and not feel like that was unsustainable. Whereas on the treadmill, I felt like if I'm getting up much above 145 and flirting with 150 for too long, then I start to kind of notice that it become, if I start feeling like it maybe wasn't going to be a sustainable pace any longer. So, you know, give it, my fitness was generally the same. So, you know, running between 140 and 145 versus maybe like 150 on average just meant a little bit slower overall pace. Um, but it's the, you know, the fun thing about ultra marathons is all this stuff is kind of so gray in terms of what is really affecting what, like what's confounding what and all this stuff. And it's really, it can be difficult to know if to pinpoint any one thing causing it, but that would be my suspicion if I had to, had to guess that, uh, in a perfect world, if I did this again, I wouldn't mess up fluid stuff early on and I would be hitting closer to 40 grams per hour 
of uh, the Espiel's Race Plus that I was taking in during the day. It is just always so fun talking to you about this stuff. Like you, it's like talking to a mad scientist, except <laughs> you're talking about your own body. <laughs> uh, and uh, so this part, may, you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to be humble right now, right? Like so, throw the humility hat off for just a second. To what degree do you think that you may be a little bit more tuned into this stuff or a lot more tuned into this stuff compared to a lot of folks running ultra distances? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're just talking about like ultra marathoners in general, I'm like very much more tuned into it. Uh, I think a lot of people are more or less flying by the seat of their pants when it comes to nutrition and hydration. And they're, you know, they're going to give it their best their best effort and kind of respond to it intuitively maybe, but you know, you, there's a, there's a big difference I think between, you know, like eating a piece of pizza at the aid station versus like actually having a fuel source that you kind of know works for you. And that is coming in at the quantities that you know, your body's able to tolerate as well as like knowing your fat oxidation rates and things like that to kind of pinpoint exactly how much you need at different intensities. And I definitely am, further into that latter category in terms of the planning process. Uh, and I mean, some of that's just, uh, you know, enough trial and error too, where, you know, I kind of know like, well, if I start going up to a certain amount of fueling, there's a very good chance I'm going to hit digestive issues. And, and that's the reality of the sport. I think, uh, the most recent position paper that came out reported that like 60% of ultra endurance athletes on single day events are going to experience some sort of stomach discomfort or digestive issue. And, you know, to me, I think like, that's not shocking, I don't think, but it, on the same hand, I think it's more preventable than 60% in most cases. So like, you know, it's, it's, I think it would be like, if you're, if, especially if you're doing it professionally, you don't want 60% of your races to result in, you know, you missing out on your best day or your best potential day because you were eating the wrong thing or you're eating too much of something and stuff like that. So some of it, I think, is just kind of figuring out where you fit as an individual in terms of what you can tolerate. You know, some of that, depending on you ask, is is controllable in the sense that you get folks that take a different approach than I do and follow a, like a high carb or very high carbohydrate diet. You know, they can um, they they're they're kind of if they're doing it right, I guess they're training their gut to be able to tolerate those higher intakes of carbohydrate during the day and. Presumably by doing that and training frequently enough, they can kind of get themselves to a position where, okay, now I can get in, you know, 60 plus grams of carbohydrate per hour. Whereas for me, I kind of take it from the other angle where I'm not even going to tempt that fate. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to eat the way I feel is going to work best for me and kind of minimize the amount of calories I need to kind of get in. And, um, it's been helpful to see other runners in the sport kind of take on that approach a bit too. So I know that I'm not just like, (laughs) <laughs> kind of way out in left field. <laughs> um, you know, Jeff Browning came on our, on the, on this live stream and talked about that a little bit too. And he's another one that I, I think I just love his example too, because he's just, I mean, he's almost 50. He's done over, he's on hunt over a hundred ultra marathons. And I can't remember how many hundreds he's done a lot. Cause he kind of like focuses on that, but he spent like the majority of his first half of his career, you know, doing the high carb thing and trying to train his gut and he just could not get it to work. And he eventually switched to kind of the way I do things and, and, and loves it. And he said, he's, there's like, just, it's, it's obvious when you hear him talk that it's like, he's excited about it because he kind of finally solved his own individual puzzle. And that's kind of, I think like when we get into that stuff, like that's where I think it gets most exciting and where the, the discussion should lead is like, okay, here's some things that we think we might know. Um, but there's still way more that we don't. So let's make sure we're thinking of this at the individual level and meet the person where they're at and kind of see what's going to work for them. And you're going to have guys like Jeff, you're going to have guys like me, you're going to have guys like Mike McKnight and Jason Schlarb who kind of skew more towards the high fat stuff. And then you're going to get guys like Jim Walmsley and Jared Hazen and Camille Heron who are, you know, hitting those high, like sometimes like 400 plus calories per hour, I think. And, uh, I just think it adds a little bit of interest and it gives people, it gives people options too. Cause if I was, you know, someone who was just getting into the sport and wasn't necessarily thinking of myself as someone competing for a win or a podium or something like that, but I wanted to make sure I had a solid day, 
I'd want to know like, okay, what are some strategies that people use? And if, if the, the one that is like the main go-to just doesn't work for me, I'd want to, I'd want to know that there's another option out there. So I kind of like the variety. So you mentioned Mike McKnight and I was really looking forward to asking you about this. I mean, this was, that is who I just spoke with a couple days ago and that was our last episode of Off the Couch. So we have Mike going out, running 100 miles while consuming zero calories. And then just a few days later, we have you ripping off 100 miles on a treadmill. So I'm like, well, <laughs> this is fun. And, you know, Mike and I talked about you on this last episode as he and you were talking a bit about diet and how best to do this. And uh, first question is, um, when Mike first started talking to you about his attempt, were you like, oh, yeah, sure, Mike, you definitely can do this? Or were you like, I don't know? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, when Mike first called me, I was my first thought was like, I'm trying to remember if anyone had done this before, because that's another thing we were trying to figure out if he's like the first person to try this even or to if he completed it, complete it. And I had remember seeing a few people talking about doing something like that, but I don't remember if it was ever above 100K and I didn't remember if it was zero calorie or just zero carb. So um, my thought was like he's probably one of the first or at least someone to his caliber the first because, you know, Mike's been kind of the guy here in the U.S. when it comes to these like really long 200 milers winning the triple crown and breaking all the records at that stuff. So like... Um, for someone at his caliber to even be interested in doing this was something I'd never seen before. Uh, and that was interesting to me. And, you know, my first thought was like, this is going to be a heart rate thing. So like, you're gonna, someone like Mike, who is very strict in the amount of carbohydrates, probably stricter than me or Jeff. And, uh, um, he, he, he's going to have a really high fat oxidation rate. So, when he's running at a lower heart rate range of say like 120 to 130 beats per minute, he's probably burning exclusively fat or like so far that so far into the fat to carb ratio that even with just decent muscle glycogen levels, he's probably not going to deplete it um, throughout the course of even a hundred mile race. But I guess that was the big question going in. So I let him know, I was like, you know, Mike, you're probably in uncharted territory here. Uh, I don't know the answer for sure. It seems like if it's going to be done, you'd be a great candidate for it uh, since you've run 240 miles. <laughs> yeah. And and you're you've been doing this diet for over for I think I think he's been doing it for about three years now or maybe a little over. So like he's very well adapted. It's not like he just started four weeks ago and has decided to like, you know, test his luck with it. But um, so I actually put him in contact with uh, Dr. Dan Plews out of Auckland who um, he's a, an age group uh, a course record holder for uh, Kona. And he, he kind of follows a similar nutrition plan that I do. And he's done a lot of like research around this stuff with like carb periodization within the context of a high fat, low carb diet. Um, so I just wanted to see what he had to say, like what was his thought on it. And, and he didn't seem to think it was that big of a deal. He thought like, yeah, this is just something that like can be done, but no one's done it. No one's thought of doing it. No one's put themselves in a position to really try it. Or, you know, it's one of those things where this, with all the unfortunate situations with the COVID-19 stuff, you know, we're left with this kind of blank canvas of what we can do that we normally wouldn't because there'd be a race on the schedule that we wouldn't want to, you know, if Mike was running Western States, he's probably not going to try this there because he's going to be wanting to perform at his best versus, you know, run an N equals one experiment on race day. Uh, so, um, I think, uh, between Jeff, Dan and myself, and then obviously Mike, we thought, Hey Mike, I'm, obviously this is your decision and we were, we're not going to tell you to do it or not do it. Um, if you're committed to doing it, then this is probably the best way to go about it. And I think he, he even looked into like, because I, I you know, he's going to need water and electrolytes for sure. So like he looked into like, well, if I take an electrolyte cap, is there any calories in it? And it turns out like the, the casing on an electrolyte cap has like a calorie or two in it. <laughs> so he went out and got bulk like sodium, potassium and magnesium. Um, yeah. So he, uh, it was, it was interesting to see. And I guess my, my impression was, cause his goal when he talked to me was he's like, I'd really like to do this under 20 hours. So I was thinking like, he's probably going to pace himself and run like a 1950 or something if things go well. <laughs> 
So then when I saw it, when he, when he sent me a message after he finished it, I, I think it was on Friday or Saturday the week before, he's like, he said, he's like, oh man, I did an 18, was like 1830 something? Yeah, 1837. <laughs> I was like, so I mean, he, he clearly outperformed his expectations on it too. And um, it's interesting stuff because I think it like, it kind of shed, shed some light on how much fat you can oxidize in something like this. And I don't know how much of the details he got in with you, but I, I do think he told me that like he did notice like, cause he was doing on like rolling hill roads more or less in Utah. So I think he said like, you know, there were points where like, if it was a little bit of an incline, he could tell like, yeah, you know, there is like a little bit of a, you know, you do not have a gear that you would have if he could have, you know, had a, a gel or something like that or whatever he's normally taking in just in a real small quantity to give him a little boost to get, get through that section and run a little faster maybe. But um, he seemed to think he could have kept going. And, uh, <laughs> and I guess that, that stands to reason if you're at that point, he must've been just burning such high levels of fat that his, uh, his body was probably really just, you know, really tuned into that as long as he wasn't doing anything too drastic, like spiking his heart rate up above, you know, that kind of 130 ish range. So I'm, I'm enjoying this so much right now. Like I'm getting to middleman this conversation <laughs> between these two guys just pushing it like pushing limits and boundaries and like you know like i don't know we don't know if this is possible like that's pretty fun but just so you know uh you know i'm 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 poking mike a little bit and just kind of like dude like so where do you think this can go right and i'm sort of being sheepish i'm not i'm not trying to have this guy go hurt himself or anything but I'm curious to to run this by you because this is what he told me. He he had said right that you know the consensus everybody was telling him that he it was just crucial to keep his heart rate in that like 125 to 130 like don't start playing above that. Mm-hmm. He told me he thought he could do this. Let's say the exact same route, the same course. He thought he would be okay if he was letting the heart rate get up to 160. I would, uh, I would like to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, here's, here's what I think would happen if he did that. And this is going to be a little – there's going to be some individuality here where it really will depend on his max heart rate and things like that. So because we're working within like kind of percentages of that versus – you know, because you have someone whose max heart rate is 160 versus someone whose max heart rate is 190, then, you know, those are going to be like kind of like ranges. But, you know, Mike is probably, you know, in the 180-ish. She's probably right around there. So um, that's kind of what I'm operating under with the 120 to 130-ish range. 160 would be – he'd be pushing past his aerobic threshold. And he'd be starting to flirt with his lactic threshold a little bit. So from what I've seen is what happens regardless of whether you eat – zero grams of carbs a day or all the carbs all day, every day, there's a point where you hit intensity. Some of these determined intensities like aerobic threshold, lactic threshold, and you get up to like VO two max and like all these overspeed training things where, um, your body just is going to turn to a faster fuel source in order to accommodate for the increased in intensity. So my thought would be if he does that, he'll be able to for a while because you will have muscle and liver glycogen. But if he starts tapping into that without bringing it back or without defending that with an exogenous source, at some point his body is going to get to a point where it won't let that deplete. It won't let his liver muscle glycogen completely deplete. That's kind of a, I think, I don't think it's a necessarily a, an intentional statement, but people say like, oh, I ran out of muscle glycogen. Like, no, you didn't run out. You got so low that your body downregulated your intensity in order to preserve the little bit you had left. So my guess is if he did that, he would get to a point where like now all of a sudden he couldn't motivate himself to go faster than a heart rate of 120 or 130 because he got that glycogen store so low that, you know, it made it, it he didn't have, have anything to kind of account for that. So, um, to play devil's advocate on my own <laughs> statement there <laughs> is I guess if there was a, if there, if, if his body was able to create glucose um, in like if, if his body was able to create glucose while he was moving at a fast enough rate to keep it intact, I just don't see how that would be physiologically possible at 160 beats per minute though. Um, 
not on no fuel, I don't think, but you know, I'm definitely not the expert here. So like, I don't know like what would exactly happen. I mean, I guess my guess is Mike will find out knowing Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's interesting that he's thinking about these things, but like, I think, uh, I guess the closest, the closest thing I've seen that would maybe be interesting on that would be if they did a, Dr. Jeff Volick told me they did a study on the Iditarod dog sled race one year, you know, where these dogs are running, I think it's like 1100 miles across Alaska and they were checking the muscle glycogen of the dogs throughout the course of the event. And they actually had the dogs come back with higher muscle glycogen stores than they started with. And I believe they're just basically eating like meat and like high quality dog food. And they're not like taking in a, a meaningful carbohydrate source of any kind. So now they're eating though. So, and they're taking rest. Like they're not doing that all in one shot. Like Mike would be doing, they're doing it in stages. So like we do know that you can restore muscle and liver glycogen through fats and proteins if you give it enough time. But my, my counter to that has always been like, if you train enough at a high enough volume and high enough intensity, you're not going to do it fast enough to, you know, that's why endurance athletes turn to carbohydrates in the first place, because they're constantly raising and lowering their muscle and liver glycogen, like up and down, like way faster than most people. You know, most people who are just like, you know, going about their day-to-day -day life, they have full muscle liver glycogens. They can go days before they get that down to a level where they would need to replenish it. Uh, whereas, you know, someone like Mike or someone like myself, who's going out and you know, knocking out 20 mile runs and doing strength training stuff and all this other stuff, uh, you know, we can, we can do that in a half a day. <laughs> so like, uh, it gets, it gets to be like, you're kind of pushing fast forward on that. And then when you're relying on a, a, a process that's going to be slower, eventually you run into a problem, I think. So that would be my, my, my suspicion with it. But you know, hopefully the exercise phys scientists listen aren't like cringing too badly. <laughs> well, even if they are, one thing that I'm personally not going to do is ever tell Mike McKnight that, oh yeah, no, that's impossible. So it's like, <laughs> I just think I've gotten to the point where you know, yes, I believe in science, but I also believe in Mike McKnight. And there's a bit of a, like, I don't know how to rectify these two things. It's like, here's, here's, here's where I think everyone can agree. If we tell Mike, he can't, it means yeah. he's going to try. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. if we don't want him to try this, we should just tell him it's going to be easy. We know you can do it. He's not proving anything. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then maybe he won't. <laughs> um, I'm curious, you know, cause Mike, um, he spoke really well about like what kind of, you know, got his interest in doing this. And it was largely because he had a lot of stomach issues when running these longer races. Right. So he's like, well, here would be one way to like reduce the risk if it was possible to, you know, consume fewer calories or zero calories. So I guess I'm curious for you in your goals and where your interests lie how interested are you in trying to dial down, you know, the food intake, like on race days or whatever is, are you into that? Or is that not so much your jam? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely go lower, um, than most people do like 40 grams is kind of my peak. Usually I don't go much above that. Uh, you know, there might be an odd hour here and there, depending on the weather, how hot it gets, that'll I'll flex up a little higher than that. But on average, you know, and 40 grams is tends to be pretty low. I think like most folks following a moderate carbohydrate diet are going to be wanting to target probably 50 to maybe 70 grams per hour or so of carbohydrate. So I'm definitely below the, the window that is advised to do within the context of an ultra marathon you know, run or something like that, I guess, if you'd want to call it that. Um, but like, I just don't see in my own, like I've always, this is the thing I've always been, I think pretty consistent on since I started this was that I'm going to let performance be my guide with this because there are certain individual things that we just, that I'm just not going to know by looking at the bulk consensus of like what works for the average person. So for me, it's always been like, all right, if I'm nailing my workouts and my racing is going well and fueling isn't going to, isn't being the, isn't the thing that's limiting me, then, then I'm on the right track. So what I find is when I go like, uh, lower than that on a key race where I am flexing up to 150 beats per minute or higher, um, I, I notice my performance dips. So 
for me, I've kind of solved that riddle in my own, my own way. But like, I'm also not doing the same thing Mike is in the sense that Mike's kind of bread and butter are these 200 milers. So where I think this gets really interesting for him, isn't that like, you know, he can run a hundred miles or maybe further on no calories or does a zero calorie approach to racing actually outweigh in his particular case, bringing in food. I think what it tells, tells us is like, if he can keep the intensity low enough, um, he could do a 200 miler or some of these longer ultras on a zero carb fueling strategy at least, and maybe not suffer any performance deficit from that. So, and I think that's where the real question is, is where does the performance come out? Like we know that people can do ultra marathons on a high fat, low carb diet. We know that even a strict keto diet, you can get it, get it done. The question is, where's that line at, of intensity in which like it no longer, you do take on a performance deficit. Um, and then there's going to be the question of how does that work on average? So if we just grabbed a random 30 people and we put them all on the diet, like this is where they would on average tend to start suffering performance versus, you know, someone who's on the fringe on the outlier who like struggles from like a digestive issue or can't tolerate carbohydrates at the, at the level that was required to kind of meet the needs on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. Um, I think that's where it gets kind of interesting and, and Mike's certainly, you know, skewed so far to the longer, lower intensity stuff where I think it just becomes more and more of a, in my opinion, an, an obvious option for him. I'm curious to ask you, cause I, you, you just, you spend so much time in this stuff and looking around and looking at the research and reading, what are you currently most kind of either fascinated by or curious about what's the little corner of the i don't know the world or the performance world where you're just like dude i'm geeking out about this right now yeah um i think like one thing that is uh kind of interesting to me right now that i, I guess i haven't done a really deep dive into yet because so far i haven't seen it's just in its infancy so far. So I have to be kind of careful about, you know, what you kind of put stock in versus wait and see kind of a mentality. And is, I guess it's like the exogenous ketone side of things. Um, and I think like from the folks I've talked to that, that have like dove into this research a bit, um, their kind of consensus is it looks like there's something to be said about maybe some exogenous ketones like post race or post big workout from a recovery standpoint possibly being beneficial, but the jury's still very much out on whether like using an exogenous ketone during an event is going to provide a performance benefit or deterrent or, you know, no, or like no meaningful difference type of a situation. So I think that's kind of interesting stuff though. And I'm excited to see what the folks who are like the real scientists are going to come out with that in, in the coming years in terms of like where that fits within the world of performance. Maybe I should have you say a word about, should we define terms here, exogenous ketone? Yeah, so um, I think it was, I mean, it gets it gets maybe a little more push in the cycling world because I, th I think the cycling world tends to like grab onto some of these like things that aren't quite proven yet first and then try it out at, at the higher level before like a lot of other sports do. Um, but basically, you know, you're basically what, 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 what's trying to be done here is like, you know, you get someone like Mike or myself or Jeff Browning, you know, we're trying to get ourselves to burn higher rates of fat, which is essentially during a race going to come off our body in a higher rate than it would if we were following a high carbohydrate, high carbohydrate diet. So you can also make exogenous ketones and then consume them, which I guess in theory would give you that fuel substrate, like an additional fuel substrate. So the big kind of puzzle that endurance athletes running as far as we are, are trying to always solve is like, well, you know, where can I get the energy from? Because you're ultimately going to burn more calories per hour than you're going to be able to digest. The digestion is always the kind of the limiting factor there. So, I mean, they've done a lot of stuff in, in through the sport to kind of like improve that where it went from like, well, if you blend different carbohydrate sources, you can in theory, maybe get up closer to 90 grams per hour versus 60 if you do one in isolation. And, and then you're looking at other things too, like, um, like your fat substrate, like, like your fat metabolism that I think in most cases people are just going to rely on body fat for that. 
Um, and then you have exogenous ketones, which I guess is kind of like another fuel substrate that you could technically tap into um, if you did it exogenously. And that's where that, that thinking is. But I just think we don't really know know enough yet to know one way or the other if it's going to be like a situation where, oh, now we can take in more overall energy throughout the course of this event per hour and therefore have more reserve or more on tap um, versus, oh, yeah, this is just going to create a stomach issue or more digestive issues on top of what we've already seen and then ultimately end up not being a being a beneficial thing for performance or not. So, um, but I mean, that world is pretty broad, I think, at the moment where they're looking at exogenous ketones from a therapeutic standpoint too because you think about like some of the efficacy of like a ketogenic diet stems from like you know helping folks like with epileptic seizures and you know those folks have to be on a very strict ketogenic diet if they're going to use that as a therapeutic measure to the degree that they even have to be mindful of how much protein they're taking in because they're trying to like keep a really tight window of uh, millimoles of ketones so if they could yeah, I think especially with like children who are going to be a little harder to control in terms of a nutritional uh, requirement to that strictness is like if you can have an exogenous ketone that would keep their blood ketone levels at a certain range uh, would be beneficial for some of these things. Um, but yeah, you know, there's some you, so I don't butcher it too badly. I think if folks are really interested, they should check out uh, Dr. Brianna Stubbs it's doing a lot of research on that type stuff. I think she's one of the folks who's kind of on the forefront of the ketone world, the exogenous ketone world. And, uh, she's, she does a lot of like, she just does podcasts and lectures and things like that. So if folks want to do kind of a, a deep dive versus my kind of surface skim summary of what I've seen, then she's probably the person to check out. So what is the rest of your 2020 going to look like? Do you have a decent sense of that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I haven't really seen a lot of races popping up on the calendar yet. Uh, and, uh, I also haven't seen a lot of races past September get canceled yet. So it's kind of, we're in a little bit of a limbo here, I think in terms of what's going to be available, if anything, for the rest of this year. So, um, I'm going to probably give it a little bit of time while I'm kind of bouncing back from this treadmill session and just like easing back into training and then if it looks like there's a good chance we're going to be able to do some races in the second half of the year, I'll probably sign up for something. Um, I might skew towards the trails because I've been doing a lot of flat kind of runnable stuff the last year almost at this point. Uh, so I like to kind of switch it up a little bit just to kind of keep it fresh so I don't feel like I'm doing the same thing over and over again. Um, but next year I'm actually going to be doing uh, a Transcon project where I'll run from San Francisco to New York. And, uh, you know, if there would be no races the rest of the year, I would probably just put a lot more energy into like getting myself ready to know what to expect for that. Cause that's going to be something that's even further outside my purview than the treadmill was in terms of like, if I want to target Pete Koselnick's, uh, record of, I think he averaged just about 72 miles a day. Like I need to know what my body feels like after doing a series of days being on my feet like that. So I can get a gauge of like, well, what are my fuel requirements going to be? Um, what types of food are going to be the most ideal? When do I have them? And that sort of stuff. Because uh, with something like that, when you're looking at seven-ish weeks of continuous running at the, you know, 12 to 14 hours a day, you know, you have one bad day, it can derail everything. So you got to be really, really on top of things, I think. So um, I'll probably just spend a little more energy planning that if there's no races. Wow. So, I mean, but that is very much like you are intending to do that in 2021. Yeah, I'm kind of targeting probably like late spring or I'm sorry, like maybe mid or early spring for, for that next year. So maybe around March of next year is kind of the tentative date right now. And what is the current record? Uh, Pete did it in, it was 72 miles a day. I'm blanking on the, how many days that was. It was like right around seven weeks. So he, and I mean, to make that even more impressive for him since he's, he's like so the man at this like long stage stuff is, uh, uh, he actually had a day off, I think in there and he still averaged 72. So, uh, I think he had an ankle issue one day, so he had to like to rest it. But, uh, yeah, so, um, that's that that would be kind of the outside goal i think um from a performance standpoint would be see like you know 
can I stay on, how long can I stay on pace with Pete and, and maybe, maybe get there faster if things go well? What's the best question I haven't asked you? The best question you haven't asked you, um, let's see, um, maybe semi unrelated to me is, uh, how did you get Burt Kreischer to come on for over an hour to the guest <laughs> stream? <laughs> and the, the story behind that is, you know, I've gone on to the Joe Rogan experience twice. And the first time I went on, uh, Joe, like we, we were just kind of like chatting for, for quite a while before my, at the time it was the hundred mile American record came up. And then I had mentioned it. I can't remember what we were talking about, but I mentioned it. And he was like, like really surprised. He's like, you ran a seven minute mile pace for a hundred miles and just like went ballistic. And then he said, st- he said, he said, Bert thought it was impressive when he ran a sub five hour marathon. And I kind of just like jokingly said that, uh, you know, Bert, if you're listening to this and you want to run a sub four hour marathon, let me know, I'll help you get there. And like after that show, that clip kind of went, got popular from the, from the show. So Bert actually reached out to me and the irony of it was uh he was actually going to be in phoenix where i live like a couple weeks later to do some stand-up and uh so he's like yeah let's meet up and we'll do a podcast on my on my podcast and you know so i uh, got to hang out with bert and uh go see a show that night and then we've just stayed in touch since then so i shot him a note like probably three or four weeks ago just asking him like hey any chance I'm, i'm doing this treadmill run um seeing if I can get a hundred miles on the treadmill and, uh, try to wait, raise some awareness for a charity called fight for the forgotten and asked him if he wanted to come on. He said, yeah, I'll do it. And I thought like, okay, he'll probably come on for a few minutes and then, and then bounce out. So I made sure there was a 30 minute slot for him and he ended up coming on and talking to Eric Schranz who does a, a ultra runner podcast for like 30 minutes. And those guys were just kind of joking around for 30 minutes and then he stuck around and hung out. My wife was hosting the final to our block and we had Courtney DeWalter, Sally McRae and Maggie, Maggie Guterell come on and he stuck around and was just chatting with them and they were trying to get him to do an ultra marathon. So <laughs> at the end of the day, they got him, they got him interested in doing the Javelina hundred, I think. Oh, wow. So we'll see where that goes. But yeah. um, that's kind of the story behind Bert showing up on the, on the live stream. That's awesome. Well, man, one of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of thinking about skiing and mountain biking and running and the NBA and the NFL, right? All this stuff. All these other sports have sort of just been shut down, not running, you know? And I I actually kind of love this about the running world is that we got people like you and Mike and, you know, others are just like, well, Let's just go create this new challenge or try to answer a question, right? Like, can a human body do this? And um, as we sit around and it's like, ah, is the NBA or Major League Baseball going to resume or not? It's like, well, some of the runners are just like, well, races got canceled, but there's still incredibly interesting things that we can go do. And um, I don't know. Good job running. And good job, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. I think running has a funny way of thriving even when the chips are down, it seems like. So it's been cool to see people get into it, I think, too. And, um, you know, people reach out who traditionally maybe wouldn't be runners, say, hey, this is what I've got available to me right now. Uh, how do I get started and that sort of thing. So I'm excited to see kind of what happens when we get through this in terms of just the level of excitement from the running community that's been there as well as the introduction of people who found out, Hey, I guess I actually do kind of like this after not being able to go to the gym for the past couple months and doing whatever else they maybe would have done previous to that. Yeah. And you know, finally then, um, just a personal note of thanks. You know, I'm, I'm a guy definitely during the winter when it's, you know, extremely cold and snowy here in Crested Butte, you know, I'm putting my time on the treadmill during the winter, though I'm usually doing like four or five miles. And now literally every time I get on a treadmill for the rest of my life, I think you just made this easier for me. Because if I'm <laughs> if I'm feeling like, oh God, I got to do five miles here. It's like Zach did a hundred. And I think that just is going to make it like 
at least 15% easier for me and uh, will, will get me over my like moping. So uh, that's my personal note of thanks to you for, for the rest of my life. Awesome. Well, I guess I could just say mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, it's it's incredible what you've done. Um, and uh, really, uh, congratulations on your latest accomplishment. And I guess congratulations, too, for just being so good at talking about all this stuff and the performance details and the like. And uh, yeah, props. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. All right, Zach, you take care. All right. Bye bye. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Zach for the conversation. Thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Crested Butte, we hope that you are doing well. And until next time, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please come see us here in the Gunnison Valley. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.